History drips with irony, often of the most savage kind, and few histories do so more than that of modern China. One is struck by it at almost every major turning point in a country's history, from the fate of political reform under the late Qing, 1898-1911, to the death of Zhao Ziyang in 2005. Indeed, the repetitive cycle of historical irony might best be encapsulated by drawing a parallel between the Empress Dowager Cixi placing the Emperor Guangxu under house arrest for attempting political reform in 1898, and the Emperor Dowager Deng Xiaoping placing Premier Zhao Ziyang under house arrest in 1989 for essentially the same crime. What had the intervening 90 years of revolution been for, if not to rid China of tyranny and give it a fully modern constitution? You're joining us on Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. That was Dr. Paul Monk, reading the opening lines from the conclusion to his path-breaking 2005 work, Thunder from the Silent Zone, Rethinking China. That book was path-breaking because at a time when almost all pundits were making single-projection claims about China's future, Paul insisted that we had to think in terms of divergent possible futures, admit that these were path-dependent and not at all certain, and that monitoring which one might end up occurring required paying attention to numerous variables that too many pundits failed to examine. Paul, could you explain why you believed all those years ago that different scenarios were necessary aids to our thinking on China's future? and what your proposed scenarios were. Yes, Nick, what struck me going back to the late 1990s was that there were a a considerable number of people, you would have to say I think that this was the consensus that had emerged in the field, that China's economic growth would continue more or less indefinitely, that it would be this, uh, this onward and upward surge in Chinese economic growth, and that you would just get a more prosperous China that either would, for that very reason, be benign because uh, the rising tide would lift all boats, or it would remain observably the way China was, which they thought was relatively inward-looking and Pacific, not expansionist, what was not to like. And uh, I felt that this was implausible in a number of ways. And so I, uh, I outlined four alternative scenarios. You might call them ideal typical scenarios. So I wasn't saying that you could closely specify precisely how each of these would turn out but they differed in kind, and they presented quite starkly different alternative futures for China. The first of these I called mutation, which was by far the most benign, and that would be one in which economic growth in China led not simply to greater prosperity, but because of greater prosperity, to social change and political reform, and that we would end up with a China that would be a very large version of, say, South Korea or Taiwan, and that indeed would be a happy outcome. The second I called maturation, one in which Chinese economic growth continued as, say, that had Japan had for 30 years or so, but then it leveled out because there were obstacles to indefinite growth and there was no precedent for such rapid growth going on for more than about 30 years. Uh, And if that occurred, you would have a China in a middle-income trap or plateau, um, but with enormous demographic, environmental and other challenges to meet. Uh, and so it would be better off than it had been under Mao, but it, it would be far from being rampant or taking over the world or super prosperous. The third scenario I called militarization, and that is one in which as China grew wealthier, the regime chose to pour resources into military power and internal security, and that this would present a very different China to the mutation scenario and one that we might find distinctly disquieting. The fourth scenario I called metastasis, which was where, despite the growth in prosperity, the Communist Party would prove unwilling or unable to make the political and institutional changes required to keep the equilibrium and open society up, and that the result would be a meltdown, a political crisis, a social crisis, uh, and a bit of a mess in China. That was uh, published in 2005, and at that stage, I think it would be fair to say that if Pundits had been asked to nominate which of these four was the most plausible. They would have said mutation. We now know that of those four, that's actually the least likely right now, Uh, that the regime has set its face very explicitly against democratisation and political liberalisation. It has poured resources into military modernisation and internal suppression, surveillance and censorship. It's spending even more on the latter than it is on its military, and it's spending a great deal on its military. 
So that's very close to the militarization scenario. And Xi Jinping is now alienating almost all his neighbors and threatening to take military action. There could still, however, be a metastasis that is because of the refusal to reform and open institutions, this could all come crashing down. Mm. So um, that makes for a very interesting thinking about what's going on and what we might think of doing about it. So that book was written a decade after you had resigned from the Defence Intelligence Organisation and from government service altogether to go your own way. Tell us how you got to work in the Defence Intelligence Organisation to begin with and why you left. Yeah, that takes us back. Um, So essentially, I completed a PhD in international relations in 1988. And uh, it had been a, a very interesting process doing that. And it had nothing to do with China. And I really needed a job the next year. So I applied to defense thinking at least I'll get myself a job and draw a basic income while I see the PhD through examination. And then we'll see what happens from there. Without going into chapter and verse, I had completely unexpected difficulties getting into defence at all because of security clearance problems. But once I did get in uh, and applied then to to join the Defence Intelligence Organisation, then called the Joint Intelligence Organisation, I was assigned to work on East Asia. And, you know, I've I've said tongue-in-cheek to quite a few people over the years, so it's funny how things work out because... I'd done an undergraduate degree on European history, ancient, medieval, and modern. I'd done a PhD on US Cold War counterinsurgency strategy. I hadn't studied China, Japan, Korea at all during my university years. And suddenly that's what I'm asked to work on. I was given no language training, no no in-country experience, whatever, just asked to work on East Asia. Now, it so happened, this was 1990 when, when I was asked to do that, and uh, Ross Garneau, our former ambassador to China, had just published a report called Australia and the Northeast Asian Ascendancy. And he was saying Australia's future is strongly geared to the rising wealth in Northeast Asia and China will be next following Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. And so I thought to myself, well, this is where to make a career. This will, you know, this is an opening. This is an opportunity. So let's throw myself into that. And... uh, Within a, two years of uh, joining as a junior um, graduate analyst, I was head of the Japan and Korea's desk, and I did that for a couple of years. And then the position as head of the China desk came up, and I, I applied for it, and I got the job. And uh, so at that point, I thought, okay, excellent. I'm on my way. I'm getting dug in. I was by that stage increasingly well-known and respected across the government. Um, however, what I discovered after two years working on China is that although uh, I don't think you would have found anybody who said I wasn't good at what I did. I couldn't get Defence or Foreign Affairs to back me and say uh, that we will train you, foster you, develop you to be a world-class expert on China. I said to both departments, look, this country is going to need absolutely first-class China expertise for the indefinite future, and you now know who I am, you know I'm good at what I do, um, but I don't have the language and I don't have country experience. If you arrange those things for me, you will have a first-rate China analyst. And to my dismay, they both said no. The Defence Department said, we don't send civilians to China. And Foreign Affairs said, you're not one of us and, and we're not particularly inclined to hire you. And so I, I decided reluctantly uh, that, well, there isn't a future on China for me in the Australian government. So I walked away and I reinvented myself in other ways. Yeah, right. And so what was the pathway from resigning that interesting position with a very promising future to publishing an original book on rethinking China. Well, it's curious the way things play out. Be- because I'd had that job, the media, the ABC, the newspapers regarded me as a go-to man on China. And so I was regularly invited to speak about China on TV and radio, to write about China in the press. Uh, I also made very good contacts in Taiwan, and so I was regularly invited back to Taiwan, and I was able to visit places most people never get to see. Uh, and so I wrote a long string of essays about China while working to set up a consulting operation that had nothing at all to do with China. And uh, as a result of those essays getting attention, I was then approached by Henry Rosenblum at Scribe and asked would I write a book for him to publish about China. And I said, well, that's easy. All I have to do is pull together these essays I've written over the last five, six years, edit them and update them, write an introduction and conclusion, we've got a book. And, mm. and that was the book that became Thunder from the Silence Zone. Yeah, excellent. But that was 15 years ago itself when you published Thunder from the Silent Zone. And during that time, you've never earned a living as a China analyst nor a professional in that field. So why have you kept up writing and speaking about it in the news media, in Parliament and at various private functions? Yes. Uh, Well, I think it's something that's grown on itself. 
So why did I do it immediately after I left uh, DIO? Well, the short answer to that is that I didn't know quite what else to do initially. And in 1999, after I'd been teaching at a couple of our universities on an informal basis, I was invited by John Fitzgerald to actually create and teach a course on modern Chinese politics at the Trobe University. And so that very much got my hand in. Uh, and in fact, he was so impressed by the course I put together that he said he thought he would teach my course from now on. <laughs> and he was a professor of Chinese history. Mm. That was very flattering. Um, uh, so I had this background knowledge and kudos for having been head of the China desk in DIO. And that was an invitation that was constantly coming to me. Write about it, speak about it, tell us what you think about it. Uh, it was some years, however, before that came full circle and I had people in government inviting me back to Canberra to mm. conferences and to address audiences. And I must say that when in 2019 I was invited to give a keynote speech and indeed chair the panel at the end of the day at a newly created forum, um, all of government forum called the China Day, it was a very sweet moment for me because two things were evident. One is that the number of people working on China in Canberra and the bureaucracy had grown enormously since I'd left government virtually 25 years before. Um, you could have probably you know, counted the people in my day uh, as perhaps a couple of dozen. I addressed an audience of 400 and they were all China hands and they had had to leave 300 people out of a gathering because they couldn't fit them in. That's an index of how immensely our relationship with China and our trade with China has grown in that time. Mm -hmm. um, and to me personally, what was extraordinary was that throughout those 25 years, I hadn't been paid by anybody to work full-time in China. I never had received the language training or the in-country experience, and yet I had this audience eating out of my hand. Mm. Um, and, and part of me was taken aback. I thought that, you know, it really shouldn't be the case. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of similarly senior people in the bureaucracy who don't go on to do those sorts of things. Yes, that's correct. And indeed, in general, it's probably fair to say that most former government officials, whether they're intelligence analysts, diplomats, um, politicians, for that matter, don't really get into the business of extensive public commentary or become media figures. You know, some do. But I think the difference in my case is that I hadn't really ever been a career civil servant. I'd been somebody who did a PhD and then for a few years I worked in a bureaucracy and my instinct was to think and write and express independent opinions. And um, my willingness to do that then reinforced the inclination of the media to engage me mm. to speak because I was seen as somebody who at least seemed to know what he was talking about and wasn't holding back his opinions out of deference to some corporate organisation, government organisation, or for that matter, the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. So tell us a bit more about the experience of speaking at the China Day. What was the audience craving to have elicited such a positive reaction from them, but also now being asked to proofread a draft biography of Hu Yaobang by American China scholar and former CIA analyst Robert Sudinger? Yeah, it's very interesting, Nick, because, you know, basically since the turn of the century, I've earned my living doing things that have nothing specifically to do with China. And yet I keep being invited back to write about, speak about China and, and including to government officials. Um, I've relished that. I've found it deeply satisfying to be respected enough to be invited to do that. And uh, what I have found is that over those years, many people who were my peers at, you know, at a more junior level have risen to the top of the tree now. I mean, an, an old friend from my DO days is now Secretary of Defence. You know, others are senior uh, diplomats and so forth. Um, and I, on occasions, get emails from people whom I didn't actually know in government, but who were at the top of the tree even years ago. And out of the blue, they'll email me saying, I really, you know, admire your writing. That's, that's really satisfying in the nature of the case. Um, and the China Day invitation was a specific case of that. As I remarked, there's this big audience in an auditorium in the ASIO building, and uh, uh, and I got a very warm reception. There, there was there was a lot of listening to what I had to say, a lot of praise for how I said it. Um, so if I ever had felt, as indeed I did years ago, frustrated at the refusal of government to develop and foster me, um, that's greatly ameliorated by being invited back and then being so well received mm. in stating my own opinions and not official opinions about China. Um, as for um, proofreading Bob's book, there's a background story to this. Um, 
a couple of years ago, my partner and I, Claudia, were in Washington. And through a mutual friend, we were invited to dinner by a woman called Diamond Liu, who's a China analyst of Hong Kong origins. And she, she emailed me and said, my husband and I would like to invite you to dinner. And they lived in D.C. So we went to their place for dinner and um, the door um, opened and there's a um, male figure there. And he says, uh, Paul Monk, welcome. My name is Bob Sudinger. And I said, Bob Sudinger, I know who you are. <laughs> I just didn't know you were Diamond's husband. <laughs> um, I knew him as a former CIA China analyst, but nobody, including Diamond, had mentioned that he was the husband in question. Mm. So we had a great laugh and we went in and Claudia and I had dinner with the two of them and we had a lovely conversation. In the course of dinner, Bob mentioned that he was writing a biography of Hu Yabang. Now, your listeners may actually not be aware of who Hu was, but he was the single most prominent and most memorable leader of China in the 1980s who pushed for and articulated a case for political liberalisation and reform in China, for China having a democratic future. He was pushed aside because of that by Deng Xiaoping, who was the boss man. He died in April 1989, and that brought tens of thousands of students out into the streets in what became the Tiananmen Square protests, because they knew who he was very well, and they knew what he stood for, and they wanted what he stood for. And Deng sent in the tanks, and this was a great tragedy of modern Chinese politics. So... Um, for the two years that passed after that dinner, I was constantly going back to Bob saying, how's your book coming along? I really want to read your book. And finally, in December last year, Diamond emailed me and she said, he's nearly finished. Would you like to proofread the manuscript? And I responded, I would love to proofread the manuscript. <laughs> and so they've been sending me the draft chapters one after another, and I've been proofreading them. And uh, and I mentioned this on my Facebook page not so long ago, and a, and a great Chinese friend who is an expatriate scholar working in Chicago emailed to me and said, uh, how did you get the interesting work of proofreading a biography of Hu Yabang? And I said, well, I was invited to, and I responded with enthusiasm. Mm. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's where I'm at with, it's an avocation. It's not my academic specialty. It's not my income. It's just something that I very much enjoy doing. And I should add, of course, that I enjoy doing it not least because China is absolutely the biggest game in town. These are very important issues. This is not a game. And so to come to a couple of those issues... Will there be political reform or democratisation in China anytime soon? And if not, what should we expect, perhaps with reference to those four scenarios you outlined earlier? A perfect question, because in fact the mutation scenario that I did outline earlier was the one of intelligent, deliberate, gradual democratisation. Uh, very much on the model of what occurred in Taiwan in the 1980s. And, and again, most of Ilysses will almost certainly be unaware of this, but there was a dictatorship, a nationalist, not a communist one in Taiwan for uh, 30 years from, uh, or 40 years almost, until the mid-1980s. And at that point, the deliberate decision was made by the then dictator of Taiwan, the Republic of China and Taiwan, Chiang Jing-guo, who was the son of um, the famous Chiang Kai-shek, who had been dictated before him. And and Zhang Jingguo had been his father's security chief. He had implemented dictatorship. He made the very deliberate decision to democratize. And so there was some hope that the same would happen in China. If for no other reason than that Zhang Jingguo and Deng Xiaoping had been classmates in Moscow in the mid-1920s, they knew one another. They'd both been trained as Leninists there. And hope was that that they would end up making a similar decision, that, that Stalin-style communism, Leninism was not an emancipatory political program and that democratization uh, on a model roughly as pioneered in, in the Western democracies was a better model. That did happen in Taiwan. It hasn't happened in China. Now, the question is, will it happen? Well, it seems right now and for the immediate future less plausible than it did certainly in the 1980s or even a few years ago. However, it's worth pointing out that there are very thoughtful Chinese scholars in Hong Kong, in the United States, in Singapore, who, and for that matter, insofar as they can, uh, they can keep breathing in China under Xi Jinping, uh, in China itself, who have been arguing not only should it happen, in a sense it must happen because it's the only solution to China's institutional difficulties. And there's a particularly good book on this subject published in 2019 in Hong Kong, more precisely published by Harvard University Press, but by a scholar in Hong Kong called Ji Wei Tzu, called Democracy in China, the Coming Crisis. Now, 
This was written and published immediately before the national security law was imposed on Hong Kong. But in it, he argues that the case for democracy in China is not some abstract, idealistic or imperialistic one. The case for democratization in China is because the the gridlock in China, the difficulties that the party is facing in governance in China are registered by the fact that it's spending such enormous resources on repression, surveillance and censorship. If it was legitimate, if its institutions were in good working order, it wouldn't need to do that. Mm. But it constantly has to ramp that up. That's got to give. That can't go on indefinitely. Mm. Uh, so that's where we're at. And what that means is that Maybe there'll be a crisis which will lead to intelligent reform. Maybe there'll be a metastasis, a breakdown of institutions, which one would prefer not to see, but it's a distinct possibility. Mm. So Chi Wei-Su wrote that book in 2019, and the national security laws were imposed on Hong Kong in 2020. Has this already put pay to such hopes that democratisation might occur, instead entrenching authoritarian rule and subsuming Hong Kong into the People's Republic of China? What crisis did Xi have in mind? I think that that he had in mind, and it would be so interesting to interview him right now about this, the very kind of crisis to which I alluded a few moments ago, that is that, that the regime finds that civil society in China, despite all the repression, continues to develop because millions and millions of Chinese are now better educated, more affluent, more widely travelled, more conversant with what's going on in the world than they ever were in the bad old days. And telling such people that they've got to adhere closely to Xi Jinping thought and and the guidance of some know-it-all leader in a vast and complex and rapidly changing country simply makes no sense, right? That system is intrinsically unworkable. That's what he's pointing to. And he's pointing to it as a a practical, deeply educated and patriotic Chinese. So it's important to realise some people assert that it's Western's Western ideologues or imperialists or or conceited Americans who want to impose democracy on China. We're talking here about highly educated, cosmopolitan Chinese scholars who were saying this is what we need, in the same way that Hu Yaobang was impeccably both Chinese and a high-ranking member of the Communist Party, and that's where he wanted to go. Mm. So that's what's on the table. And what remains to be worked out is will Xi Jinping and the party hardliners bring China to war or crisis before we get there. There are precedents for that in Japan, in Germany, in the Soviet Union. And so the next few years are going to be a very testing time. And what precisely caused that change in the overall trajectory of China's political leadership? You think about Hu Yaobang being an intellectual wellspring of democratisation as an ideal within the Chinese Communist Party, Deng Xiaoping being representative of economic liberalisation and political liberalisation down the track, But in the last eight years, after Xi came to power in 2013, you had a very steep descent into authoritarianism and domestic and regional bellicosity and even tyranny. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, If we go back to your question about Hu Yaobang compared to Deng Xiaoping, what you can see with Hu Yaobang is somebody who has been described, even in China itself, as the conscience of the party. He, He had always been a thoughtful, literate, sensitive kind of guy. And... um, he suffered greatly during the Cultural Revolution. He was he was thrown out of, of political jobs. He was imprisoned. He was literally tortured. He was beaten up. And Deng Xiaoping was the person, or more precisely, uh, Ye Zhanying, one of the generals, who always kept an eye on him and managed to save him. And then when Mao died, brought him back and said, OK, we know your abilities and your integrity. We've got some work for you to do. And at that point, in the late 70s and then in the early 80s, he did a series of remarkable things. He was put in charge of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and asked to put it on its feet again after the disasters of the Cultural Revolution, and he did. Mm. He was put in charge of the party central school for the training of cadres and asked, put that on a sound footing so we're really educating cadres instead of merely indoctrinating them, and he did. He was then put in charge of the organisation department of the party, which oversees party personnel, with the mandate to rehabilitate in person or by reputation literally millions of people who had been imprisoned, sacked, beaten up, exiled, put in concentration camps or executed during the Cultural Revolution and before. And he did. And then he becomes General Secretary of the party. And in that capacity, he starts to lead the charge. Mm. Well, it was hardly a charge. Lead the slow march, you might say. <laughs> to political and institutional reform, legal reform, democratisation within the party and then across the country. That, however, seemed to Deng Xiaoping a bridge too far. He was very hesitant about that. And 
that he was, at the end of the day, a Leninist. He didn't really believe in democracy, even within the party. He he made some reforms intended to modify the uh, the party's way of conducting its business so that you wouldn't have a dictator like Mao Zedong. Mm. There would be limited terms for the top guy. There would be more collegiality, etc. That was at least sensible and pragmatic. Xi Jinping has thrown that out the window, and we're back to where we were, except that now China is far wealthier than it ever was under Mao. And, of course, it now has a sophisticated digital totalitarian surveillance state that the Soviet Union couldn't even dream of. Absolutely so, and and even George Orwell would roll his eyes in wonderment at what we now currently already see in China. Could you speak a bit more about the broader democratic traditions and histories in China, with reference to the 1911 revolution, the May 4th movement, and democratic activists such as Liang Chi Chao, who I understand witnessed Australian Federation in 1901 and took inspiration from it as a model for China. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the Communist Party's rhetoric and its narrative about Chinese modern history basically obliterate these people, right? And so you're offered a version of history in which it was always going to be a communist revolution and, and it was a communist revolution that defeated the Japanese, that freed China from Western imperialism, that has put China at its feet and all those things. That's a grossly oversimplified version of what's actually happened. Um, it is the case, nonetheless, that until the 20th century, there never was a democratic tradition of any kind in China, right? And I like to say that we would benefit in our universities, insofar as we could reform our own universities, if graduate students or even undergraduate students had available to them a seminar in which there would be a systematic comparison between the classical Greek and Roman republics to which we trace our very ideas of constitutional accountable government, or what we call democracy, and on the other hand, classical China, where there was no republics, there were only kingdoms and empires. When you got to the 1900s, um, against the odds in some ways, the ageing uh, empress dowager, Xi decided to actually listen to senior courtiers who were saying to her, China should move in this direction. China needs a constitutional monarchy and a federal system of government and it needs democratic elections. Mm. And so she arranged for them actually to take place, something the Communist Party's never done, and we'll come back to that. And those elections took place in 1911, and 43 male propertied voters participated, multiple parties took place, and a constituent assembly was elected in what we would rightly call free and fair elections. Not with the universal franchise, but there were definitely elections. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the context in which the National Republic of China was declared by Sun Yat-sen. Right? And for a brief shining moment, as we say about Camelot, it looked as though just possibly the empire would transition into a constitutional monarchy mm. with an accountable government, a multi-party democracy, etc. But it fell apart. And uh, uh, it fell apart because there wasn't the institutional infrastructure uh, and the political cohesion to make it work, and because an old imperial general, Yuan Shikai, decided actually to do it away and make himself the emperor. And then he failed in that task, and the country fragmented into warlord provinces. Mm. Um, there were a number of outstanding young leaders in the Guomindang in those years who had the potential to be really great Chinese leaders, charismatic and gifted Chinese leaders, uh, one of the most notable, though very few people have heard about him these days, is a fellow called Song Jia Ren, who, once those elections had taken place, was to be the parliamentary leader of Guomindang in Beijing. And he was set to go to Beijing from Shanghai. He was at the railway station. When he was gunned down, he was assassinated. Mm. Um, Twelve years later, when Sun Yat-sen dies, uh, another very gifted, you know, polylingual, highly educated um, broadly left-wing labor leader, uh, Guomindang leader, uh, Liao Zhonghai, was set to replace him. And that again looked really promising. And he was assassinated. Mm. And, and these are turning points in modern Chinese history. Because if you could have had leaders like that, young and gifted and idealistic in place, great things could in principle have been possible. But instead, what you got was um, warlordism. You got Chiang Kai-shek taking over as a military leader of the Guomindang on the right wing of the Guomindang, linked to the Green Gang in Shanghai. And you had the Communist Party forming with its Carter strand in Moscow and advised by people from the Comintern, and they ended up in civil war. And then you had a Japanese invasion, and you had a mess. Mm. What's remarkable is that if you skip that 
you know, interregnum of, let's say, 50, 60 years, you nevertheless get someone like Hu Yabang emerging from the ruckus, still essentially saying, OK, well, we've had major digressions. We've had some terrible misfortunes, mm-hmm. but let's do this. Mm-hmm. And then he gets shunted aside and you get Tiananmen. Yeah, yeah. Just a popular sort of uprising for calling for democracy. Well, the the remarkable thing given China's history overall is that that there were demonstrations by tens of thousands of students and at, at one point hundreds of thousands of citizens of Beijing. They wanted democracy. They wanted accountable government. They wanted to cut down corruption and arbitrary rule. It wasn't an uprising. They weren't in arms. They weren't sacking anything, burning anything. They weren't like the Red Guards in the Cultural Revolution. But Deng set the army on them and thousands of people ended up being shot crushed, imprisoned, or fled abroad. Uh, that's awful. And and whatever one says about the subsequent economic growth of China, politically, that was a debacle. That was mm. a bad day. Mm. And and the truth is, if you look at the documentation that was leaked from China subsequently and is available in print, and which I've read personally, even the hardline senior leaders, Deng and Yang Shangkun and others, knew that. They knew that this was a nasty thing. They just didn't know how to do it differently because all their instincts were repressive and Leninist. Mm. And Zhao Xiang, who'd been the premier that replaced Hu Yabang, had, had pleaded with him, don't do this, let me talk to the students. But they they dismissed him from office and he ended up spending the last uh, 16 years of his life under house arrest. That's China's problem. It, it, it has found itself unable not to produce gifted and intelligent leaders but to give them secure office so that mm-hmm. they can implement programs. And China needs, for its own sake and the sake of the rest of us, to get to that point. Is that what you've called the dragon culture? I think in response to Edward Lutwak's writing that China was an autistic nation with regard to its neighbours. Uh, yes, uh, Eddie uh, Lutwak um, has written about China as what he called an autistic Mm. culture, that it's so inward-looking, so used traditionally and conservatively to seeing itself as the, the middle kingdom, the Zhongwu, that it it has difficulty relating on anything like equable or honest terms with other states. And we can see that on Xi Jinping. We can see it in the way China currently relates to Australia. It, it, it's, it is autistic. Um, but there's a different matter at issue here when it comes to... Uh, uh, you know, what's called for for the sake of China. Um, and that is that, you know, with the best will in the world, one, one wants to see, if you're a patriotic Chinese or if you're a foreign American, Australian, whatever, one wants to see an open, flourishing China that we can all live with. One wants to trade with China. One doesn't want to fight China. But under Xi Jinping, we're, we're being backed into a position where we almost feel as though that's what's going to happen. We're Mm. not being given a choice here. And that's an ominous future. That's the militarisation scenario. As you've mentioned, that mutation scenario is now unlikely in the near future. But we are seeing that militarisation scenario emerge under Xi, and we could soon see metastasis. Is that right? And what does that look like in future? Yes. Uh, You know, one of the people who uh, contributed significantly to my thinking about this many years ago was a chap called William Overholt, who in 1983 wrote a book called uh, China, the Next Economic Superpower. In that book, he argued um, against many Sinologists and other democratic critics of, of Deng Xiaoping that despite Tiananmen, China essentially had its policy settings right and that it adopted what he called the East Asia model, which had been pioneered by Japan and had worked in South Korea and Taiwan uh, and that if it stuck to that model, it would become an economic superpower. It would grow enormously. And, of course, it did, and in significant measure, because it had indeed stuck to that model. However, uh, two years ago, to maybe three years ago now, he published a book called China's Crisis of Success, in which, without citing my scenarios, he effectively said they needed to undertake institutional reform and political liberalisation over the last 10 years, and they didn't do it. They kept balking at it. And now the chickens are coming home to roost because they can't move forward in a sustainable, prosperous way without those reforms, and now those reforms have been blocked. And uh, it's not clear what's going to happen, and it could be a social upheaval. And for him, of all people, for Bill to be writing that, was to me very significant. And I, I went to Harvard after 
reading that book and I had a long talk with him about this and I reviewed his book on its publication. So there's been, in a sense, a convergence uh, among what I would call serious things about China. He was never an academic. He was a merchant banker. He was a, an analyst for you know big banks, uh, for Bank of Strata in Hong Kong, for Nomura in Tokyo. Um, and he knew a lot of the top people in, in Beijing, uh, and yet he'd reached this very somber conclusion. So that's where I would say we are at. Mm. Uh, and uh, the question now is what happens next? And uh, in reviewing his book, I said, what's clear based on his analysis, quite apart from that of other people, is mutation is for the moment off the table. Militarization is occurring. Metastasis has become a distinct possibility. And how dangerous has China's military build-up now become and what, if anything, can be done to contain it and, and keep the peace? Well, now we're really cutting to the chase. And when we look at what China has accomplished in the military field and what it's currently doing or, or, or threatening to do, we realise that this is what I meant by the militarisation scenario. Right across the spectrum of military capabilities, China has put enormous resources into catching up with and seeking to overtake the United States. It used to say, no, we're just doing military modernization to protect our borders. Well, no, no, it's going well beyond that. And uh, and this is in everything from ballistic missiles to space technologies to cyber war to blue water navy to marine, marine amphibious and power projection capabilities, uh, advanced armor, um, and it's worth pointing out that during the 1980s, this was on the back burner. Deng Xiaoping had famously said, we must give priority to developing the economy because without an advanced economy, we'll never be able to build an advanced military. So it has to take a back seat until we get the economy cranked up. Hide and bide or whatever it is. Well, he used to talk about hiding and biding, right? Hiding our ambitions and biding our time. Xi Jinping isn't hiding or biding. <laughs> uh, and one reason he's not is because 30 years of, of mega growth have persuaded him and those around him that they don't need to hide anything anymore. Their, their hour has come and, and their ambition, and they've said this very openly, is to push the US out of East Asia and the Western Pacific and become the dominant military and economic power in the world. And if that was just a matter of overtaking the US as a roughly comparable kind of state, which was open and accountable and transparent and wanted collective security and so on, we might say, look, we, we can live with that. But that's not what China is. That's not what Xi Jinping is. Mm. It's a minatory state. It's a, it's a xenophobic state. It's a highly ambitious state and a deeply repressive one. And, uh, and none of its neighbours are comfortable with this, not the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, the, you know, the Indians, not Australia. Um, but its military capabilities have become formidable and it's no longer clear. For 70 years it was clear that if there was a clash, the US would would clean up the Chinese Air Force and Navy, hands down. The way it cleaned up, say, Saddam's forces in the Gulf War. And it should be added that Chinese military observers watched very closely in the Gulf War because they thought, and they weren't alone, that the US might itself get into a stalemate against Saddam's large Soviet-equipped veteran army that had fought Iran to a standstill. Instead, what the US did is assemble its forces and it just swept the Iraqi army off the table like kids' toys. And the Chinese were gobsmacked. They thought, oh, my God. Look at that. Mm. that. That could be us. We don't have anything better than Saddam, right, in 1991. Um, so really it was from that point that they thought nobody at the moment can defeat the United States in a conventional war. And so you're crazy if you try. What we need to do is develop military capabilities that will, A, deter the US from starting war against us, B, enable us with asymmetric capabilities to cause it grief in ways that will lead it to pull back if it does start a conflict, and C, at the end of the day, to develop capabilities that will put us on a par with them but in that order, mm. all right? And they've gone about it very systematically. And now they're very close to a situation where the US might well say, well, we think we should defend Taiwan if it's invaded, but we're no longer sure that we can prevail if we do, mm. all right? And, and if that happens, and it could happen in the very near future, and the US steps back, then all bits are off as to what happens with alliance systems and security. That, that's how precarious things have become. And if you were to take a contrary view to your own and a lot of the thinking in the Western world at the moment, and you were a conservative Chinese communist nationalist, how would you defend what Xi and others before him have done with regard to the claims of the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea, the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong, and the annexation of Hong Kong into mainland China, 
internment camps in Xinjiang, the tensions around the Diaoyudao, Senkaku Islands with Japan, etc. These are the policies that govern 1.4 billion people, many of whom seem to support Xi and the government in large measure. Yeah, I'm not sure about the billion people, but it's, it's quite possibly the case. Certainly Chinese-conducted opinion polls insist it's the case that a great majority of people in China, in fact, they go so far as to say, you know, the whole people of China, believe in these things. Um, what's more significant is that if, as you say, you do this thought experiment, say, suppose I was myself a Chinese military officer, a, a nationalist, proud of my country, mm. successful in my career, you know, highly intelligent, how might I look at this situation? Well, here's a parallel um, to build a point of view on. In 1931, the Japanese annexed Manchuria, and there was a vote in the United, so not the United Nations, the League of Nations, in which the Western powers said, you can't do that. And the Japanese delegates stood up and said, just so we understand one another, it's perfectly okay for you, European powers and you Americans, to have colonies and to rule half of Asia and most of Africa and, and the Caribbean and all those things, but it's not acceptable for us Japanese to have colonies. Yeah? Well, that strikes us, frankly, as racist, and they walked out. Mm. And they had a point, one has to say, if you look at it from their point of view, right? You, you know, one might say, leaving aside whether you're Chinese, if you're Western, one might say, well, it is imperialist to an expenditure. Sure, it was, the Japanese said. But you're all imperialists. Mm. What's your problem with us being imperialists? Mm. Now, using that as, as a way to clear the head, so to speak, put yourself then in a position of this Chinese nationalist to say, until the European imperialists came along, we were the dominant power in Asia for the longest time. Mm. All right? And the South China Sea was to us what the Caribbean is to the United States. Mm. Right? And, and nobody much challenged that until the Europeans came in and because they had superior military power they exerted control and we couldn't do anything about it well we can now thank you very much you know we were the middle kingdom Japan was just a set of islands off the coast until the modern world when they jumped ahead and then they tried to take over us well we saw that off we're now resuming position which we would see as natural as the biggest power in Asia as the oldest civilization in Asia and they object well <laughs> You know, they're going to have to suck it up because things have changed, right? Why would we even aspire to see the US pull out of East Asia? Well, because it's our backyard. If we had military bases in Canada and Mexico and the Bahamas and so on, the Americans would be uncomfortable, wouldn't they? You know, if we even proposed that we would do that, there'd be an uproar in the US Congress. But they think it's perfectly natural for them to have military personnel and bases in South Korea, in Japan, in Guam, in the Philippines. You know, and they object to us having bases in our own backyard in the South China Sea. Well, I'm sorry. Mm. I, I think there's a different way of looking at this. Now, if we come to the question of Taiwan, we know nobody's disagreeing about this. Taiwan was given back to the Republic of China in 1945 after the defeat of Japan. It was part of the Republic of China. There was a civil war in China, which we won, the Communist Party. That meant that the whole of China became the People's Republic of China. It just so happened that Chiang Kai-shek hightailed off the mainland, took refuge in this island, right, and then set up a, a regime defying the victory of the party. And the US stepped in to prevent us from finishing the deal. Mm. Well, we intend to finish it. And we would prefer to think that the United States will see reason and back away and say this is an internal Chinese affair. But they somehow think that they've got a right to intervene. Well, again, we differ. Thank you very much. So it's not difficult to articulate this point of view. All right. And and if you believe... It's even compelling in some sort of seductive way, you know. Precisely so. And it's important to do that thought experiment, mm. you know. Uh, I mean, many years ago, I was invited to give a talk at Advert to Australian cadets about a Chinese view of the world. And I did this kind of thing. And I said, let's imagine you were a Chinese officer in the Communist Army in 1950. And... You know, the party has just taken power and we're still cleaning up inside China with all sorts of bandits and reactionaries and warlords and drug runners and criminal gangs, right? Tidying all that up. And never mind that that was a really ruthless process, but, you know, that's happening. And then MacArthur decides not only to roll back Kim Il-sung's North Korean armies, but he says openly, on to Beijing, let's overthrow the Communist Party. Now, if you're an officer in the army that's just taken power, are you going to say, oh, well, he's American and they're the good guys, so I guess that's fine. I don't think so. Mm. I really don't think so. And what did Ma do? He sent the People's Liberation Army into North Korea to confront MacArthur and fought the Americans to a standstill. 
Mm. All right. Um, if you were Chinese, if you were your equivalent in China in 1950, I lay odds that you would see it from that point of view. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, so we do have to do this kind of thinking, right? You have to be able to see the situation you're confronting from, as far as you're able to do, the point of view of your adversary. It doesn't mean that you agree with the adversary or you throw up your hands and say, oh, well, you're right and I'm wrong. It means that you at least understand what drives their thinking and therefore their actions. Sure. But does that mean we're due for an inevitable clash between the established power and its rising rival? The Thucydides trap, as Malcolm Turnbull often referred to it. Uh, well, the, what's, what Graham Allison called the, the Thucydides trap is a model on the Peloponnesian War where the, the existing dominant land power in Greece, Sparta, uh, and its allies were confronted by the rapid growth after the Persian Wars of Athens and its empire. And the question was, what do we do about this? Because the Athenians are threatening to sort of become the dominant power, and we'd prefer they didn't, right? And the long and the short is that you ended up with this prolonged conflict between the two. And, uh, and it was a big and tragic war, you know, and, and Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian was one of the absolute classics of Western literature and historiography. So Alison says, well... We surely don't want that to happen in the case of Sino-American relations. How can we avoid it? My own view is that he he got his history and his parallels muddled. And one thing he signally overlooked is that whereas in this case the rising powers China and the conservative powers America, in the Peloponnesian War was the conservative power, Sparta, hmm. that won, not the rising power. Hmm. And and so if you were strictly using that as a parallel, you'd say, well, if, if it comes to this Thucydides trap, it may well be that the conservative power and its allies will prevail. The rising power will lose. Um, but that aside, in terms of the parallel and the metaphor of Thucydides and, and the Peloponnesian War, there is a growing danger of, of conflict. And because of the, you know, the immense scale and the technologically advanced character of many of the weapons available now to both the United States and China, it could be a cataclysmic war. Right? It, it could spiral out of control. And the single most dangerous focus of that potential conflict is Taiwan. Now, my, my personal view, and I've, I've written about this for many years, is that in all the circumstances, it would be in the interest of the regime in Beijing to say, we don't want a war. That could go really pear-shaped and it would at the very least be immensely expensive. Uh, what we do want is we want to continue the growth uh, of China and we want to draw Taiwan into our orbit. We want it to be, and to see itself as part of the Chinese world. We don't want to destroy the place. You know, it, it has prospered mightily and it has invested greatly in the mainland and it's the epicenter now of microchip production. Why would we want to blister it in a war? No, but everything we've done for decades now to insist that it must become part of the People's Republic has pushed it away. Hmm. That That's not working. And a war is reductive out absurd in that respect, right? <laughs> so what are we going to do? Well, the best thing that could be done Difficult as it is conceptually for, say, communist officials to think about this is to say to the people of Taiwan, we understand that you have in fact governed yourself independent of us since 1945. We've never ruled Taiwan. And you've done very well and you're very happy the way you are. We wouldn't want to mess that up for you. We understand. We want you to prosper. In fact, what we hope is that we can reach such an understanding with you that you will, instead of seeing us as a threat, you will see us as your big brother, your protector, your homeland. You will look to us uh, as, a, as a cultural motherland rather than to the West, all right? And that's only going to happen if we say, relax, you're going to be okay. We're not going to invade you. We're not going to assault you, all right? That's the opposite of what's occurring at the moment. But what it would lead to, almost certainly if it occurred that way, is the people of Taiwan saying, well, well, great, because we aren't Americans, we are Taiwanese, and, and we do speak Chinese, and we do have a long-standing relationship with China. It goes back far before there was even in the United States at all. So if they let us breathe like that, if they let us govern ourselves, we can come to an understanding. Mm. All right. Mm. But what we've just seen in Hong Kong is the very opposite of that. Mm. Right? The people of Hong Kong were saying, listen, we have the basic agreement on special autonomy, we want that honoured and we want more democracy and, and what's happened? You've got the national security law. So at the moment, and things Xinjiang are going... And, and it goes on. Not it, right it does. Today. Things are going in absolutely the wrong direction right now. And the problem is that if you're looking at this from the point of view of Xi Jinping and the hardliners around him, 
they think that they're on a roll. They think they're winning. And so they're not at the moment getting the signals or incentives that have them slow down and think, wait a minute, this could get out of hand. They're thinking, we're going to win here. Hmm. That's really dangerous. To come to another topical scenario, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic, which began in China, clearly, but even the World Health Organization inquiry recently failed to establish how it exactly began in China. Do you have a working theory about what's happened here? I do have a working theory, although it, it would be presumptuous of me to say that I am better informed than the World Health Organization people who have just been in Wuhan. You know, what's striking is that after long delays in being able, able to go there, they were denied access to all sorts of data and they came away themselves or several of the members of the team came away saying, we were denied access, we were denied data. We just think that the Communist Party, the Chinese government, didn't want the truth revealed. What is that telling us? Well, it's really hard to know. They're being tactful, right? Um, if the Chinese government had, like the rest of us, really wanted to get to the bottom of how could this have happened and how can we prevent it from recurring, they would not have withheld data in this fashion. That either means that they have a pretty shrewd idea what did happen and they don't want anybody else to know, or they actually don't know what happened, but they want to appear for reasons of prestige, as though they're on top of their game. And so they don't want the truth to come out, which might show that, that they had no idea what was going on and it got into a, a mess. Now, the second is less disconcerting than the first, but it's hard to see a third alternative. Um, there is, of course, the persistent and residual scenario. When you get regular reports coming out of Washington without the documentation to substantiate it, I have to say, that the virus may have originated in a, 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 virology, a virology research institute in Wuhan. Now, there were two such institutes. They did do research on coronaviruses, on bat viruses. They were looking at human transmissibility and their safety standards, as a matter of record, were known to be substandard. And I, therefore, am not prepared to rule out the possibility that that's where the problem actually started. But precisely how it started and what the Chinese government knows or knew at the time that's what I think they're covering up. Mm, right. And so the Australian government's 2020 call for an independent inquiry into this matter got an extremely hostile reception in Beijing, triggering a trade war against Australia by China, which included bans on barley, lobsters, wheat, wine and coal, which has all been a significant detriment to the Chinese people in many ways throughout a very severe winter. Why did our call for this inquiry trigger such a striking reaction? And what should our government do that it's not already doing to handle this alarming set of developments? It is an alarming set of developments and, and it strikes me as indicative of what we referred to earlier using Eddie Lutwitz's phrasing that, that the, the regime in China is autistic. You know, it, it, um, it has expressed great indignation at the very idea that there should be an independent inquiry into its handling of the coronavirus. Um, to say nothing of, of the, uh, the actual origins of it. And uh, I think it's clear from a whole series of statements made long before the coronavirus that the strategic intent of the regime in Beijing was to draw, the, uh, draw Australia away from its alliance with the United States and into China's orbit. Um, and it undertook a whole series of measures to bring this about in terms of the economic relationship, in terms of diplomatic relations, in terms of influence operations, in terms of espionage, in terms of hacking. Uh, and I think what became clear under the Morrison government is that that was simply not going to happen, that Australia was sticking fast to the US alliance, that it understood very well what China was doing and was not going to be suckered in and was not going to be subordinated, wouldn't kowtow. And, and so the trade war by Beijing is intended, at least, to punish Australia, to bring it to heel. And instead, of course, what it's driving home to the people of Australia is this is a hostile regime in Beijing. Mm. This is not one we want to be friends with. Mm. And we will not kowtow to it. We're interested, we're interested in being, we're accustomed to being free and independent. Thank you very much. Now, could this go bad, uh, you know, go badly, go worse? Might we end up losing this confrontation with China? Well, abstractly, of course, that can always happen in confrontations. But we need now to put that in the broader context in which China has been doing with variations similar kinds of things with most of its neighbours. 
you know, it sent troops into India on the basis of territorial claims and there were armed clashes. Um, it has taken over areas of the South China Sea, including oil claims that Vietnam claims, for example. Uh, it has made territorial claims against Japan and, and sent fishing fleets and people in there to uh, unsettle the Japanese. It has done similar things in the case of South Korea. Um, it, it's, it's as if the regime in Beijing, for reasons best known to itself, has been actively trying to alienate all its neighbours and basically insisting to them, you must cut down because we're China. Mm. That, that, that is autistic. That is simply tone deaf, big time, all right? Now, that's a context in which our strategic planners have been thinking, well, we need to think our way through this. We don't want to get hot-headed and carried away and precipitate an aggravation situation that we don't want. But we need to talk to the Indians, talk to the Japanese, talk to the Americans, the Vietnamese, the Filipinos, the Indonesians about, okay, how do we handle this? And that's a context in which um, something that people are hearing more and more about, the quadrilateral dialogue has been taking place. And the quad is India, Japan, Australia, the United States. Now, if you put those four together, if those four countries, all democracies and, uh, and all substantial economies, in fact, in the case of Japan and the United States, you know, the, the, the biggest and third biggest economies in the world, right? You balance all these against China. We outweigh China very, um, you know, very substantially. Um, and moreover, there's a strategic perimeter around China, mm-hmm. right? And there's depth of strategic, you know, lines of defence outside China, right across the Pacific and into the Indo-Pacific. Mm. China doesn't want to see that coalesce, but it's behaving exactly the way it will make it coalesce. And that's where, uh, you know, really the, the strategic dialogue and the strategic thinking that we need to do and indeed are increasingly doing is taking place. Speaking about strategic thinking, there have been a series of books published in Australia and abroad in the past decade about the implications of China's rise. Which ones would you recommend, having reviewed many of them in the press? Yes, there have been a good many, and one could roughly divide them into two categories, books published in Australia, which tend to focus on Australia's place in this larger scheme of things, and books published outside Australia, which, if they look at Australia at all, put it from the other end of the picture mm. or other end of the telescope, so to speak, in that larger context. My personal favourite among books published in Australia is one by Rory Medcalf, who runs the National Defence College at ANU, called Contesting the Indo-Pacific, Why China Will Not Map the 21st Century. And it's an extended, beautifully articulated piece of thinking, which he tells me it took him 10 years to craft and put together about the the strategic geography of Asia and the Pacific and where Australia fits in it and why the dialogue between China, Australia, India and and Japan makes sense, has begun to occur and is going places and that it provides buttressing against Chinese ambitions that China is not well placed to overcome. I think he makes the case very limpidly um, and uh, without ever getting carried away or hyperventilating. I think it's a very fine piece of work. Mm. So if somebody was to say to me as an Australian citizen, which book, if I read one book on this subject, should I read in order to get my mind around it? I'd say read Roy Metcalf's book. Mm. Um, there are a number of others which, of course, have made a splash. And, and uh, Brendan Taylor wrote a book you know, called Four Flashpoints in Asia. It's called all, you know... Um, Richard McGregor has written a couple of very good books. One's called Asia's Reckoning. It's about the prospects for conflict and confrontation. These are good pieces of work. There have been a number of people who've written books in which they have uh, really argued, like Jeff Raby did recently in his book on China's grand strategy, or Hugh White has done on several occasions, where they're effectively saying China's going to win. China's going to be number one, and we have to come to terms with that. We don't get to set the terms of the game. it always troubled me that they would take that point of view. It would trouble me if I felt that nonetheless they were essentially correct. What troubles me most is that I don't think they're correct and I think they ought to know that it's not as clear as that. So why are they making that case? Um, why are they seeing it that way? Uh, I have never said to people, don't read these books. I've read them myself and I've been critical of them. Um, but I do disagree with the, the author's contentions. In the case of the broader literature, um, uh, so Michael Green, um, I might nominate, shall we say, as the American equivalent of Rory Medcalf, 
Green is the Japan Chair and a Senior Advisor at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, as well as Associate Professor and Chair in Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at Georgetown University. He's had quite a career in um, the National Security Council and in American Defence Analysis. And in 2017, he authored uh, a major book, a substantial book called By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy and American Power in the Asia-Pacific Since 1783, published by Columbia University Press. Uh, he's written other books, but, but if I was to simply nominate one book that you might read in order to get your mind around this big picture, alongside Rory's book uh, on the Australian perspective, I'd say to be Michael Green's. It's, a, it's an attempt on a substantial scale and with depth of scholarship to analyse this strategic situation, which, which instead of painting it from, so to speak, the, the, the Shire point of view in Australia looking outwards, takes it from the Gondor point of view looking <laughs> out on the big picture. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time this evening, Paul. It's a great pleasure to speak to you as always.